we rejoin for Parshas Yisro, which of course at the center is the Seres Adibros, the climatic, uh, climactic uh, point of the Parsha, but it begins with Yisro himself, Ayishma Yisro, and <coughs> Yisro hears, we heard from afar, of everything that uh, had transpired with regards to Yitzias Mitzrayim. He comes to uh, join B'nai Yisrael in the Midbar, and Moshe apprises him of the, of the story in detail. <coughs> and interestingly, the Parsha concludes, this is in Perik Yudches, at the opening Perik of the Parsha, and uh, this section, Rishon really, concludes with Yisro bringing Korbonus. And Pasukyut Beis reads, Vayikach Yisro, Chosen Moshe, so Yisro takes <coughs> Ola, Uzvachim lelokim. So he takes what the pos- what the pasuk refers to as Ola and Zvachim. Ola is a burnt offering, and Zvachim, <coughs> whenever they are mentioned in the Torah, <coughs> actually refer to a specific type of korban. Although in the parlance of uh, Chazal, there's a masechta called Maseches Zvachim, which deals with korbanos in general, but uh, zvachim, within the context of the Psukim, certainly when mentioned together with other korbanos, is specifically shlomim, what's called a peace offering. It turns out, therefore, that the uh, event which really capped off this whole episode of Yisro's arrival to B'nai Yisrael was the bringing of these two types of korbanos, Ola and shlomim. And I think it's fair to say that with so much else going on in the in the parsha, we might not have been inclined to pay such close attention to the specific types of korbanos that Yisro brings. After all, we we get the idea in general. He's very happy, and he brings a korban, which is a very religious thing to do. And the specific categories of ola and, and shlamim might not necessarily uh, grab us so much. However, (coughs) to combine (coughs) and really uh, integrate the the Parshanut here, Reblate Minsberg says that if you understand exactly what Yisro had discovered when he came to join Moshe and B'nai Yisrael, you will then understand why he brought an Ola and Shlomim specifically. (coughs) What do we hear Yisro say? Really two things. I mean, Moshe tells him the whole story, and then Yisro's first response is in Pasuk Yud, <coughs> which reads, Vayoma Yisro Baruch Hashem, Asher Etzileschem, Miad Mitzrayim, Baruch Hashem. Yisro is famous for saying uh, Baruch Hashem in this uh, uh, context. Who, who saved you from Mitzrayim and Paro, Asher Etzilesh Ha'am, who saved, the, who saved the people. That's the first thing he says expressing <coughs> joy over the salvation, Hashem's saving the Jewish people. The, sec- the second thing he says in Pasukut Aleph is more of a, a, a God awareness. And the first is really about Hashem's kindness for the Jewish people, but the second is about Yisro's own awareness of Hashem's omnipotence, where he says, I now see that Hashem is greater than any other force, any other uh, power in the world. 
These are really two different things. Not that they're uh, uh, contradictory, but they're not the same. One is, again, Hashem's kindness to the Jewish people, and the second is an, an awareness, <coughs> an apprehension of Hashem's um, limitless power. Corresponding to these two things, says Rebbe Minsberg, Yisra brought two different korbanos. One's an ola, and one's a shlami. What is the difference between them? An ola is offered entirely on the Mizbeach. That means, in a sense, the entire entity is nullified f- f- within the context of, uh, a- 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 of the Avoda. And this corresponds to Yisro's awareness of Hashem's limitless power. In other words, nothing really exists fully or significantly before him. And therefore, the korban which marked that awareness of Kigadol Hashem, Mikol Elohim, was an ola, <coughs> where everything else is basically nullified before Hashem. With reference to Yisro's other response of Baruch Hashem Hashem the kindness and of Hashem's uh, protection of the Jewish people, for that he brought shlamim. Because what is a shlamim if not something which you offer it to Hashem, but then you partake of it also? Some of this shlamim is consumed, and therefore the and that's why it's called shlamim. It, it makes shalom. And it's shaling, <coughs> and everyone everyone benefits. So the extent to which Bnei Yisrael were specifically the the beneficiaries of Hashem's uh, power, so for that he bought a shlamim. So it's it's very interesting. It really kind of caught my attention that uh, by that stage, when he makes an ola and a zvachim, and and we, we we would be fine either way. But to understand how the specific korban really caps the the experience and discovery that Yisro had. With reference <coughs> to Yisro's statement of uh, discovery, where he says in Pasuk Yud Aleph, Atoyodati ki gadol Hashem mikol Elohim. Again, as we mentioned this Pasuk, Hashem is greater than any other power. Well, how so? How does Yisro know this? He proceeds to say, Ki badavar asher zadu alehem. A bit of a difficult uh, uh, pasuk to parse, but uh, for, for literally for in the matter that they acted willfully against them. Rashi explains the words Asher Zadu, Asher Arshiu, Hirshiu, that they were, were evil against them. And this is the context, concept of Mida Keneged Mida, in the same way that they were evil with. Uh, against the Jewish people, so Hashem punished them, midah keneged midah, measure for measure, and, and this uh, is something which really uh, overwhelms uh, Yisra. However, there is another dimension within this Pasuk. Yisra's <coughs> awareness of Hashem's uh, power for in the matter Asher Zodu Alehim, Rashi has translated the word um, Zodu, as we said, as Hirshiu, that they were evil. Unclus translates the word Zodu as Dechashivu, that they intended, which is interesting, <coughs> because actually the word Mezid, we say if a person acts with intent. That's called mazid, with, with, with uh, evil intent. 
So the focus can either be on the act, it was an evil act, or on the intent. And in this regard, Rashi and Unculus seem to have parted ways. Rashi focused on the act. Hirshiyu, they acted wickedly, that's Zodu. Whereas Unculus seems to have focused on the intent itself. Dechashivu, from the word machshava, things that they thought. But what is the meaning of this? <coughs> Reb Velvel Soloveitchik, in his uh, volume on the, on the Parshios, so he begins by directing our attention to uh, a classic comment, to a well-known question. We say in Hallel, Hallelujah Hashem kol goyim, we call upon all the nations, Hallelujah Hashem, praise Hashem, Shabuchu kol haumim, all the nations. Why? Ki gavar aleinu for Hashem's kindness has overpowered us. And as we can appreciate, and in fact, the Gemara itself raises this question in the final parak of Maseches Psachim. These two hardly seem to lead one to the other. What are we saying? We're calling on the nations of the world to praise Hashem because he's been kind to us. And something seems to be uh, disconnected here. If we would say, call upon the Jewish people to praise Hashem because he's been kind to us, that makes sense. We're the beneficiaries. If you call upon the nations of the world to praise Hashem because he's kind to them, that also makes sense. But he's kind to us, and they should praise him. It's, e- it's very easy to sing those words without, without necessarily pondering that question. And many, many answers are given to this question. Rabbi Kiva Eger cites the Sifrei, which says <coughs> that the Jewish people are actually a conduit of blessing for, for the world, in the same way that Eretz Yisrael is the conduit of blessing geographically. The Jewish people are a conduit of blessing for the world. So indeed, if Hashem is kind to the Jewish people, by extension, he's kind to, to that kindness extends to uh, all the nations of the world. And therefore, that's, hence, hallelujah, es Hashem, kol goyim. That's uh, a straightforward, <coughs> classic response to this question. But there is a famous uh, reply to this question because it was posed to Rabbi Yitzchak of Velozhin. Rabbi Yitzchak of Velozhin was the son of Rabbi Chaim of Velozhin. He, t- he took over as the Rav and Rosh Hashiva of Velozhin. And <coughs> in that capacity, he often had to meet with uh, those in power, which was in St. Petersburg. And uh, he would travel there and meet with these dignitaries and, and discuss with them, basically to keep the the yeshiva going. And on one occasion, one of these uh, rulers, who was, uh, I guess, somewhat knowledgeable in uh, scripture, so he raised this question to Rabbi Tzakavalotin, uh, which, as we said, is, uh, why are you calling upon the nations of the world <coughs> to praise Hashem for the kindness that he's done for you? I mean, that's something that you should do. Or, or how, did, how did these two connect? And without knowing too much about the relationship between Rebitzel of Elohim and uh, this particular person, but Rebitzel said to him, the reason why Hallel calls upon the nations of the world to praise Hashem for his kindness to the Jewish people is because they are eminently more qualified to do so than the Jewish people themselves. For the simple reason 
that the Jewish people can praise Hashem for having saved them from the designs and plans and plots of the, of the nations of the world. <coughs> but they can only praise Hashem for, for what they know. They can only praise Hashem for, for the decrees and the, the, the uh, edicts that, of which they are aware, from which they were saved. But there are so many things which are plotted against them, which they'll never know about. Either because they failed for any number of reasons, or they were foiled, or there was some mishap, or something went wrong. And <coughs> it leads us to an, an amazing situation whereby the Jewish people are actually least qualified to praise Hashem for his kindness against them. The ones who are most qualified are their enemies, who know exactly what they were planning to do and exactly what it, will, what it was that went wrong. And uh, aside from anything else, I think uh, the, the information that we know, even just in, in recent weeks, about things that were plotted, which we didn't know, and of course, it's a, it's, a, it's a, a terrible time. But at the same time, <coughs> the chesed that you only find out from, from Shabuchu Kol Ha'umim, as you discover through whatever means we discover, that uh, much, much more was, was, uh, was meant to have happened and it didn't happen. And, 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 and they should be praising Hashem more than us for His kindness to us. An evil plot. <coughs> what is its status in terms of, of being punishable. Well, in this regard, Rashi in Parshas Kisavo and it's Yerushalmi in, in, in Kiddushin say that there is a difference between the Jewish people and Umos Ha'olam. In that, an, an evil thought, a plan to do evil for the nations of the world is considered as if it was done. It's punishable as if it was done because it reflects a, a, a core expression of, of of what they are. The Jewish people are the beneficiaries of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and therefore they are heirs to a, a more elevated nature, whereby unless a person does something wrong, he's not punished for it. On the contrary, a positive intention is credited as a, as a deed. But for Umas Olam, it is a negative intention that is credited as a negative deed. So, Says Rebelvo Soloveitchik, <coughs> we have to imagine, or we have to consider, that if, if we put all of the above together, if Hashem is punishing the Egyptians, Mida Keneget Mida, so then it is not only <coughs> for wrongdoings that they actually perpetrated against the Jewish people, but also for things that they intended to, but for whatever reason were not able to. The only problem is, as we just saw from Halal, we don't know all the things that they were plotting. All we know is what they actually implemented, which means we have partial knowledge of how their punishment really fit the crime, because we can only see how it fit the crimes of action, not the crimes of intent. <coughs> because how are we going to find out what they intended? We weren't there, but someone was. Yisra. The Gemara says that Yisra was originally one of Parah's advisors. It's a famous Gemara in Sota and in Sanhedrin. There were three who were Parah's chief advisors. There was Yisro, Eov, and Bilam. It's quite, a, it's quite an assembly of uh, very different types of people. <coughs> but they were originally all there together. 
And this brings us to an amazing situation. We normally understand that when Yisro came to join the Jewish people, he came purely to receive information about the events of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. We don't imagine that he had anything to add, but in fact he did. Because as Moshe told him everything that transpired, some of which he could explain based on what the Jewish people saw, and other things could not be explained, Yisro was the one who actually filled in the gaps. And Yisro says, oh, that aspect of punishment, which probably is, it cannot be accounted for from your experience, but I'll tell you why. Because when they were planning such and such, so then this was one of the plans so Yisro was actually, he was an active listener because he actually supplied information from the plotting stage which explains some of the aspects of the punishment. And this, says Rebvelvel, is why Yisro was so overwhelmed by, the, by hearing the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim because he saw not only that Hashem had punished the Egyptians <coughs> and not only had he punished them measure for measure, but the measure for measure also extended to things that Yisro himself knew and other people didn't know about what the Egyptians had plotted. And that is why Unculus translates the word Zodu Alehem, in Yisro's words, for they were punished in the matter Asher Zodu Alehem, as Chashivu, things that they had intended. Because even the intention, even the Machshava, was something that uh, that they were punished. So it's a real uh, illumination into. Do you see the, the 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 turn of phrase from Rashi's understanding of Zodu as doing wicked things, Unclus's understanding of Zodu as as having evil intent. Yisro knew both of them and was able to supply Moshe himself with the full picture. So having spoken a bit about Yisro's arrival <coughs> to uh, to the camp. We, we come now to the preparations for Matan Torah, which is Perik Yud Tes. Okay, so Yud Tes is Yisro. <coughs> Yud Tes is preparing for, for Matan Torah. And Kaf, Perik Kaf, is the Aseris Adibris themselves. And there's an interesting comment of Rashi in Perik Yud Tes, Pasuk Beis. Um, Okay, so of course, your test begins by Chodesh Ashlishi, that's the beginning of the, of the third month, Rosh Chodesh Sivan, those original preparatory days. Pasuk Yud Beis, Vayisu Fidim Vayavau Midbar Sinai. The Pasuk gives us the, the, the journey from Rafidim to Midbar Sinai. And as Rashi comments, the... The, the mention of these two places, Rafidim and Harsinai, is to equate them. And Rashi's words, Lehakish Nisiyosan Mirafidim, Libiyosan Lamid Barsinai. Lehakish, to equate their journey from Rafidim to their arrival at Harsinai. Mabiyosan Lamid Barsinai Bitshuva. Just as their arrival in Sinai was, was, was accompanied through Tshuva. Af Nisiyosan Mirafidim Bitshuva. So too, their journeying from Rafidim is also in Tshuva. So that's very interesting because uh, we would not have necessarily factored in or seen as a, a significant uh, component in this whole uh, episode, you know, Tshuva here and Tshuva there, but uh, we're told this by the Michilta that it's part of the, part of the preparation. <coughs> but Mepharshim asks a very simple 
uh, question. I apologize for my uh, cough. I'd, I'd like to blame it on London, but uh, the, the truth is that I had it actually just a little bit before. But um, in any event, um, it turns out that the Jewish people were doing tshuva at two junctures when they left Rafidim and then when they arrived at Har Sinai. And the simple shaila is why are they doing tshuva twice? In other words, for what? Over what? <coughs> With regards to doing tshuva when they left Rafidim, we can understand that they had what to do tshuva on, because Rafidim is when they, where they had complained, and that's when Amalek happened. So there was, there was wrongdoing in Rafidim. So it's appropriate to do tshuva as you leave. But then a short while later, they arrive at Harsinai and, and they're doing tshuva, but for what? What additional wrongdoing had happened in between from the first tshuva to the second? From leaving Rafidim to Harsinai, there was another mishap? There was another, another sin? So why are there two chapters of tshuva? <laughs> what happened in between? <coughs> and Mephoshim explained that actually nothing happened in between. The tshuva, the second installment, shall we say, of tshuva that took place when they arrived at Harsinai, it wasn't over a new sin subsequent to leaving Rafidim. It was actually over the same events at Rafidim. But that, of course, leads to a question. Why do you need to do tshuva twice? <coughs> was the tshuva that they did at Rafidim insufficient? And if so, why? Why did they not do complete tshuva and refidim? It sounds like it was only completed at Har Sinai. But Mepharshim explained that from a certain point of view, one, one can do what's called complete tshuva at the time. And in this instance, at refidim, that's where they did something wrong. They were appraised of their mistake and they repented and they did tshuva and, and fully. But there is a higher level of tshuva, which in a sense can only happen at Harsinai. But what does that mean? What it means is that at the core of tshuva is a person regretting what they've done wrong. I mean, that's how, that's how tshuva begins. If there's no regret, there's no tshuva. But regret itself at the scene of the crime, so to speak, is somewhat limited. Because at Rafidim, they did something wrong. They, they questioned, is Hashem, is he interested in us? Is he among us? Is he... <coughs> and, and they were punished. So, so needless to say, they, they regret having said that. And they realized they made a mistake. But the depth of regretting having spoken in that way, you cannot compare if you're still at Rafidim or if you come to Harsinai. Because when you come to Arsina, you enter a whole elevated mode. And from that state of elevation, now look back at the way you spoke at Rafidim. And it's a different level. It's almost like at Rafidim, they were aggrieved at having, at having misspoke. But when you get to Arsina and you look back at Rafidim, they were appalled at having spoken in that way, having entered this more elevated <coughs> level of, of existence and, and being coming aware of what a person can attain, 
it, the contrast between that breeds a new depth of regret, which then elevates the entire tshuva process. So that's very interesting because it turns out, it turns out <coughs> that one can do what we would call full tshuva, but then, but then as you're on the way to Matantura, you go back and it becomes fuller tshuva, one could say. And this is something which is discussed, this idea also by one of, by one of the great uh, pre-First World War uh, Rabbanim, Rabbi Yosef Nehemiah Kornetsu, he was a rabbi in Krakow. He was a great grandson of the Hasam Sofer, if I'm not mistaken. And he addresses a very well-known medrash with which regards to Sukkot. Sukkot, the first day of Sukkot, is called, not surprisingly, Yom HaRishon. Ulkachtem lachem Yom HaRishon. Priyets Hadar, etc. and so forth. But there is a medrash, it's very well known, <coughs> commenting on this, this term Yom HaRishon, Rishon Lecheshbon Avonus. This is the first day of reckoning of Averis. And uh, needless to say, I mean, Rishonim already discussed the implications of that medrash. What does that mean? Sukkot is five, the first day of Sukkot is five days after Yom Kippur. This is the first day of reckoning of Averis, as if to say what? The, the intervening four days don't count? Nothing, nothing that goes wrong is reckoned within, within those four days? <coughs> And many, many different perushim have been given as to why the first day of Sukkot is called the first day of Cheshbon Avonus. But Yosef Nehemia explains that the reason is as per the above. We say and we understand that Tshuva has been completed on Yom Kippur. And, and of course, fundamentally, it has. Which means <coughs> the role of Sukkot within the Yomim Naraim is purely, we would say, celebratory. In other words, it just looks back on the tshuva. It follows on from the tshuva, as if to say, tshuva is done by Yom Kippur, and what is sukkah? Celebrating the kapara that we got as a result of the tshuva. And there are many celebrations, Simchas Pesach Eva, where they would sing about the power, you know, the, about the gift of tshuva, and so on and so forth. But there isn't really any new tshuva that's taking place on sukkahs. It's been done. It's just being celebrated on sukkahs. But from a certain point of view, we see that the tshuva process continues even into sukkahs. Aside from anything else, uh, Hoshana Rabbah, which is the end of sukkahs, is considered to be, in a sense, an extension <coughs> of the possibility of, of Yom Kippur. We see that tshuva somehow is still in the air as something to be done even on Sukkot. But the Shaila is, but what, what, what is there that one can do? What tshuva work can one do on Sukkot that hasn't already been done on Yom Kippur? <coughs> the answer, says Rav Kornitzer, is that as long as a person is in um, the days of tshuva, it's a, it's a bit of an irony, but being in the days of tshuva means that the type of tshuva that one will do is because you need to do tshuva, you, you, you don't want to be in a bad situation, you want to better your situation, and certainly doing tshuva is better than not doing tshuva, and that's, in a sense, a, a fundamental reason to impel a person towards tshuva. But all of that <coughs> is without ever making a reckoning of what an Avera is. It's enough to know that it's bad. It's enough to know that it is a demerit, that it, it, it is a liability, without ever really considering just how great a liability it is. So the Cheshben of Avonos doesn't begin yet. 
When does the cheshbon of Avonis begin? When you already get kapara. And now <coughs> you're in Sukkot and you're surrounded by mitzvahs. From the vantage point of Averos, it's hard to weigh in Avera because you just want to get out of there. But from the vantage point of mitzvahs, you can look back and see just what a liability an Avera was because you contrast the negative act of an Avera with all the positive acts that you're doing and you begin to get a sense of just how terrible an Avera is. And that's why the first day of Sukkot is called Rishon Lecheshben Avonus. It's the day when you start to, to, to Gecheshben. The, the, well, considering where I am now in such a good place, just see what a terrible situation that was. You get an appraisal for the negative um, nature of Averus, specifically from the setting of mitzvahs in Sukkot, which is a very interesting parish on that medrash. And the truth is, says Rav Kornitzer, this is something, this idea, which is really a fascinating idea, because again, we understand how, how tshuva is elevated. As the person becomes elevated through sukkahs, his tshuva becomes elevated, because the contrast between his current elevated state and the low state of Averus is highlighted and leading to a kind of a deeper, deeper propulsion for tshuva. But this is something that we mention every day. Why? Because in the bracha of tshuva, in Shmona we don't begin by saying, please accept our tshuva. We begin by saying, <coughs> bring us back to Torah, bring us close to Avoda, and then we say, but presumably the, the, the the order is reversed. In other words, first a person needs to do tshuva to move from negative to positive, so to get out of his averus and then move towards mitzvah. So one almost would have expected to say, and then, etc. But we see that it's not the case. Because if you do tshuva first, and of course you should do tshuva first, but we're talking about tshuva shlema. Tshuva shlema, full tshuva, is actually only happens once a person has already come back and he's already come back to Torah and he's already come back to Avodah and once we have those two things and he's, he's, he's surrounded by Torah now and, and he's, he's experienced it and surrounded by Avodah again then <coughs> his tshuva is now tshuva shlema it's the higher, the higher thing so what we, what we originally experienced in the two tiers of tshuva leaving Rafidim and getting to Harsinai in our formative experience, which then become the annual experience of Sukkot following Yom Kippur, ultimately in microform is the daily experience as expressed in, uh, uh, in the Shemana Yisrael, of first coming back to Torah and Avodah, which can then set the scene for the contrast that will beget uh, what we call Tshuva Shalem. So, <coughs> we've discussed... Uh, Yisrael's arrival with Bnei Yisrael, Bnei Yisrael's arrival at Har Sinai, and now let's take a look at an element that I would say is spawned from the Aseris Adibros, because in the Aseris Adibros we have, uh, of course, Kabedes Avicha Vesimecha, and uh, right, which is Dibor number five, honoring parents, and there is an associated. Halacha, in the Hilchos Kibud Ava'em, which also, as we will see, is related to this parsha. The Halachas of Kibud Ava'em <coughs> uh, are in uh, Yeridea, Simon Reishmem. 
and towards the end of Simon Reishmem, the Shulchan Aruch says, here in Seif Kaf Dalet, to read his words, it's a short sentence, but every word counts. Chayav Adam lechabed chamiv. A person is obligated to honor his father-in-law. So that's interesting because the Torah seemingly never spoke about it. <coughs> the Torah says, uh, But according to the Shulchan uh, that's also one's father-in-law, and the Bach adds one's mother-in-law. Needless to say, uh, we need to ponder uh, what are the sources <coughs> for this idea, and also needless to say, in this matter, we will proceed with caution. Actually, the <coughs> first source for this idea of a person honoring his father-in-law comes from a a pasuk in our parsha, because, and in fact, earlier than the Aserah Sedibros, in Perik Yudches, pasuk Zion. <coughs> so we go back to Yisro's arrival at, uh, at the camp where Bnei Yisrael are. Again, Perik Yudches, pasuk Zion. The pasuk reads, Vayetzei Moshe Likraschos. No? So Moshe goes out to uh, receive his father-in-law. He bows down to him, and he kisses him, and they ask each other how they're doing, uh, etc. And of course, the question famous from Rashi is, <coughs> it says, he bowed down to him, but who bowed down to whom? And Rashi citing the Mechilta, and the, the Mechilta is the Medrash Halacha and Chumash who? Right, because it's all pronouns. He bowed down to him, but who's he and who's him? Who's doing the bowing? I don't know, it's hard to tell from the grammar. But what we do know is that it says, so, so we assume that the Ish is the one who's doing these things. And of course, Moshe is the Ish. When it says in the next phrase, Ish to his fellow, who's called the Ish? Moshe, Moshe. So in other words, that, that gives it away, that tips us off, that in fact, the ish in question is Moshe. Now, there are certain Rashi concerns here, which we're not going to get into. It, it has been pointed out that Yisra is also called an ish. In fact, he's called an ish before Moshe. In Parshas Shemos, Vayoel Moshe, Lashem, it says ish, and that's Yisra. But uh, either way, however the Mepharshi Rashi explained, that we've identified that in fact it is Moshe. Now, Adkan, <coughs> Rashi has quoted from the Mechilta, but the Mechilta actually adds one more sentence. Because what have we just done? We've succeeded in identifying that it was Moshe who bowed down to Yisra. And what's the takeaway? What's the lesson? Says the Mechilta in conclusion, Mikan Omru, from here they said, Sheihei Adam Muchan Lechabed Chamiv, that a person should be ready or prepared to honor his father in law. That is the Mechilta. So it's very interesting that Rashi didn't quote the, the end. One could say very simply, Rashi's job is to explain the Pasuk, not to, not to, not to tell us all the halachas that come from the Pasuk. But if you look in the Mechilta, <coughs> you see 
that, that it, it draws this conclusion from Moshe that that is how a person uh, should act. The phraseology of the Michilte is very interesting. Firstly, Mikan, again, the words are Mikan Amru, from here they said, Sheyei Adam Muchan Chabed Chamiv. Person should be ready, should be prepared. So firstly, who is Amru? From here they said, what is, what is the meaning of that, of that uh, introduction? Mikan Amru, from here they said. And what does it mean to be ready, as opposed to just saying, from here we learn that a person is Mechuyav, Lechabed Chamiv. Either way, this is <coughs> the first source um, with regards to this matter, learning from Moshe vis-à-vis Yisro. However, there is another source. And it is brought in the Medrash Tehillim. Right? There is a separate collection of, of uh, Tehillim, of, of Medrash on Tehillim. It's called Medrash Shokher Tov. And in Perik Zion, the Medrash refers to an episode that takes place in Sefer Shmuel. At a certain point, <coughs> more than one point in Sefer Shmuel, Shaul was um, chasing after David to, to kill him. And in one of those episodes, it happened that um, so he's, he's running after David, and he's, he's, uh, but then Shaul, he, he enters a cave, and he's kind of exposed and vulnerable, David's men say to him, here's your chance. He's been trying to kill you. He's defenseless now. You can, you can go and kill him. David is not prepared to kill Shaul. But what he does, <coughs> as is well known, he, he kind of enters very uh, surreptitiously and he snips off a corner of Shaul's garment just to let him know that he was there and that he was at his mercy. And that's exactly what happens when Shaul comes out and he's ready to, 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 to continue the pursuit of David. David calls out to Shaul and says, see here, I have the corner of your garment. I could have killed you. I would never do that. I don't mean you any harm. Please disregard anyone who tells you otherwise. There's, there's much, much to discuss in that uh, episode. But for our purposes, what the Pasuk says, this is in Shmuel Aleph, Perek Kafdalet, <coughs> he says, Va'avi, and my father, Re'ei Gamre'ei, which I guess we would translate as see, indeed see. Addressing Shaul, Va'avi, my father, Re'ei Gamre'ei. So the question is twofold. Firstly, why is he calling Shaul Avi? Uh, and indeed, is, it, is he referring to Shaul when he says Avi? That we'll see in just a moment. And then additionally, what's the double expression, re'ei gam re'ei, see indeed see, what exactly is the meaning of that? So there happens to be a machlokus in this matter between Rabbi Yehuda and the Chachamim. All of this is recorded in, in the Medrash there in Tehillim, because in addition to Shaul, who else was with Shaul? Avner, right? Avner is his general, and Avner was a teacher of David HaMelech. Shaul, on the other hand, was David Amelech's father-in-law, aside from everything else, because he married uh, Michal, Michal Bas Shaul. And indeed, <coughs> Rabbi Yehuda says that uh, the way to understand Avi, re, Avi Re'e Gam Re'e, is there is a primary person called Avi and a secondary person who, who should also see. Who's primary that, that David is addressing and who's secondary? Primary is Shaul. 
and he calls him Avi. And then secondary is Avner, his teacher. He wants both of them to see. The Chachamim say it's the other way around. The Chachamim say that Avi, he's referring to Avner, his teacher, and secondarily Shaul. Either way, for Rabbi Yehuda, <coughs> the implications of this, of this interpretation is that he referred to Shaul as Avi, because Shaul is his father-in-law and he's calling him Avi, as if to say that in the same way that I would honor my father, so I'm also honoring you. That's the implications of, of, of directing the term Avi to Shaul. And as, as per Rabbi Yehuda in the Medrash, Avi is Shaul. Avner is secondary. Of course, for the Chachamim, <coughs> it's the other way around. He calls Avner Avi, because Avner is his Rebbe, and a Rebbe is like a father. And then Shaul is, is secondary. These are the two sources in Chazal for this idea of, of Kvod Chamiv, of a person honoring his father-in-law. And interestingly, the tour in Hilchus Kibbut he says that a person should honor his father-in-law, as it says, He quotes the, the Medrash in Tehillim about David HaMelech. And that is very interesting, because as we can appreciate, you have two possible or available sources for this idea. One's in the Chumash, and one's in the Novi. It's either learning from Moshe and Yisro or from David and Shaul. <coughs> of choosing between those two, why would it be that the tour would, would forego seemingly the, the, the optimal source, which is in the Torah itself, and derive it only from the Navi? That's an interesting shina. But, the two, but two classic answers to this question, which are both very thought-provoking in themselves. There is a shina as to whether Yisro, <coughs> as to whether Yisro, his arrival with the Jewish people was before Matan Torah or after Matan Torah. It's a machlokus in the Gemara, in Masechus of Zorah, of Kaftanet, and uh, it's also machlokus Rishonim. It's taken up then as a machlokus Rishonim. Either way, if we understand, as the, as the order of the Psukim indicates, that it's written before Matan Torah. So it happened before Matan Torah. So that could be a very simple reason why that is not considered to be the definitive source for this halacha. Because the Yerushalmi says in Maseches Moed Kotan in the third parak that as a matter of principle, we don't learn halachas from before Matan Torah. So, so whereas it's, it's, we, it's ideal to learn halachas from the, the Torah, but that's from when the Torah is given. But here, this is something that happened before Matan Torah. It could be that things change. That's the first point. And this is very interesting, and the Pardes Yosef pursues this matter. Because it's a very, it has far-reaching implications, this idea. We don't learn. We don't learn from before Matan Torah. What don't we learn from before Matan Torah? <coughs> One of the classic perushim on the Medrash, on Medrash Rabbah, is called Yefei Toar. It was written by someone called Rabbi Shmuel Yafa Ashkenazi. Um, and he makes the following statement with regards to this idea that we don't learn things from before Matan Torah. Says the Yifetar. When we say that we don't learn from before Matan Torah, <coughs> it means we don't learn halachas. But we can certainly learn what we would call Hanhagatova, 
proper conduct. On the contrary, what do we say about before Matan Torah? Derech Eretz Kodman Torah. So in terms of Isser Veheter and what's kosher and what's not kosher, if, the, if that would even be relevant, so then from before Matan Torah, maybe things have changed. But in terms of correct conduct, one can certainly learn from before Matan Torah. And therefore the Mechilta, it does pick up on the message from Moshe. Because one should take note of this. Is it a binding halacha in that regard? Maybe not, because it's before Matan Torah. But does it teach you how a person should be? 100%. And that's why the, the expression, it's quite a soft expression of the Mechilta. Mikan Omru, the rabbi said, it's not even considered to be a full halacha, right? Daraisa, that is to say. The rabbi said, a person should be muchan, he should be prepared to do this, right? This is, it's correct, it's appropriate. That's the terminology that fits uh, uh, before ma- lessons that are learned from before Matan Torah. <coughs> the tour, presumably, who's, who's codifying halachas, would prefer to, t- to see this as a halacha. A halachic source you will get from David, because that's after Matan Torah. And maybe that's why uh, the, the tour chose as his source the David HaMelech situation, <coughs> and not the Moshe Rabbeinu situation. But there is another question here, and this I think is perhaps even more far-reaching. And that is, I mean, we'll, we'll ask it in a Balabatish way, which, uh, uh, which is very simply this. When do we say <coughs> that every t- when do we say that if you see a person doing something in the Chumash, is that instantly binding for everyone? So obviously, if they're, if they're described as doing a mitzvah, so then that's, that's the mitzvah. But as if to say, <coughs> here is uh, such and such a personality in the Chumash, and the Chumash describes them as, as, as acting in a certain way. That now becomes binding for everyone to do likewise. It's, it's, it's not such a simple thing to say so. And when you consider, because what are we saying? Moshe bowed down to his father-in-law. So firstly, and no one should take offense at this, we're not the same as Moshe. I mean, Moshe's a, he's, on, he's on a higher madriga than everyone else, almost infinitely so. Which means everything that Moshe does, and Moshe did a lot of things. Moshe went up to Harsina and didn't eat or drink for 40 days. No one considers that to be a binding halacha that people should try and do likewise. It's a different type of madriga. <coughs> What's more, Moshe is, 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 is the most humble of all men. So in keeping with that humility... If he bows down to, to uh, Yisro, so that's Moshe. We don't always assume the trappings of humility are, uh, then become the, the province of the community. So it's very interesting. One really needs to ask this question very often because, because here is Moshe. There's no question. The Torah wrote it for a reason. But is the reason the Torah wrote it for our information, education, or for emulation? That's always the question. Does, does this become a, a binding thing? The Gemara sometimes uh, asks this question in different settings. Consider, for example, apart from everything else, Moshe, Moshe is not the first person to bow down to someone in the Chumash. Avram, in the beginning of Parshish Vayera, he sees these three wandering nomads. The Pasuk says he ran towards them and he bowed down to them. Shall we learn from there that a person has to, has to bow down to his, his guests? 
we understand that this is how this is how Moshe, uh, this is how uh, Avram acts. Though they were not his fathers-in-law, those three uh, wandering nomads, they're, they're, they're just three guests. He's giving them. He's been gracious to them. The chuling. <coughs> so, all of this is very interesting in terms of considering the the, the lesson that we learn from Moshe. Having said that, one could one could then counter question. Well, what about David? Maybe if David, I mean, David called. Shaul Avi. But again, maybe that's David. Maybe that's David. The fact that he called him Avi. Does, does that mean that everyone needs to call him Avi? And perhaps one may even add, Shaul is trying to kill him, which means that David wishes to, com- which it wishes to, to make the peace with Shaul, right? He wishes to, <coughs> to reignite their relationship. Could it be that such term of endearment is in place in order for, for rec- you know, an atmosphere of reconciliation, but not necessarily as an ongoing halacha mechayeves. So these are very interesting shinas that, uh, that pertain to both of these makoras, ultimately, both from Moshe and from, um, and from David with Shaul, each one fascinating in its own way, uh, as, as the way that they are codified, firstly in Chazal, and secondly in the Torah, and then through the, through the Shulchan Aruch. Let us conclude <coughs> by referring to uh, back to one of the preparatory psukim in Perak Yud Tes, and that is Pasuk Yud Beis. The sectioning off of the people. The sectioning off of the people. So once again, let's find our bearings here. Perak Yud Tes, Pasuk Yud Beis. Uh, which reads, So you should section off the people. I mean, they can't get too close to the mountain. Don't go up the mountain, don't even touch the mountain, etc. So this is the very significant aspect of sectioning the people, of distancing them a little bit from the mountain. The, it's uh, after this that the three preparatory days for Shavuos are called the Shloshish Yimei because it pertained to already for, for, those, uh, for those three days. It's interesting to contrast, just by way of um, preface, that in Pasekut Beis, the expression is section of the people. Later on, Moshe says that you told us to section of the mountain. That's in Pasekut Gimel. So the question is, well, which was sectioned off? Were the people sectioned off or was the mountain sectioned off? I mean, the answer is obviously yes, because they both were. But it's, it, it still remains different ways of referring to it. I mean, that the people are sectioned away from the mountain, so the mountain is off limits. <coughs> Either way. What is, what is the meaning of this Pasuk? So there is the simple meaning, and then there's a Meshachachma, and, and, and the Pasuk will never look the same again. The simple meaning is basically to distance the people from the mountain. Just, just make a gvul, make a boundary that the people can't go, can't go beyond. But it says, Meshachach, well, we find there are many parallels drawn between the setting at Har Sinai and what will become the setting firstly in the Mishkan and then in the Beis HaMikdash. When you consider, in the Mishkan, <coughs> you have... The sanctuary, right? You have where the, where the uh, Shekhinah itself is, which is then surrounded by a certain area, the Azara, the courtyard, which is itself then surrounded by partitions. 
mechitzos. So you have where the Shekhinah resides, an area around it, and then that area itself is surrounded by, by mechitzos, by partitions, as we know. In the, in the Mishkan, that's how it was. In the, in the Beis HaMikdash also, that would become the wall of the Azara. But let's look at Sinai. Where do we find these parallels in Sinai? As if to say, where does the Shekhinah reside? On the mountain itself. Okay. Is there an area around the mountain? There is. I mean, that's the buffer, so to speak, right? The, 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 the area between the mountain and the Jewish people. But there's one component missing. Because what surrounds that zone? What surrounds that area, which is really like the, cour- the courtyard of Harsinai, so to speak? The answer, says Meshachachma, is the Jewish people surround it. They are the mechitzos that surround that area. What this means is, says Meshachachma, go back to Pasekut Beis, which says, V'higbalta es ha'am saviv. What is the correct way to translate those words? It really depends. Depends on what you do with the word S. Generally, the word S has no translation. I mean, it's just there to introduce an object. If you try and translate it, you can't. But if you try and get rid of it, you also can't. And therefore, it's just there with no translation. Which means, means section the people off. <coughs> but the word S does have a meaning. The word S can also mean with. S Yaakov, together with, and so on. So, so says Meshachachma, Vihigbalta S Ha'am means you should, you should partition with the people. Meaning, through the people, it, the partitioning itself is done with the people because they are the partitions. They are the mechitzas. They are the entity that surrounds the kedusha. They're like the walls of the Mizbe- the walls of the azara, the walls of the of, of, of that uh, of that area. It's an amazing translation of these words. Vehigbalta, section the place off with what? Es ha'am with the am. They are human mechitzas, human partitions. And the amazing thing about this is that we have this idea where it says that uh, when the time comes, they should build the base of Mikdash, and I will dwell among the Jewish people. Right? Actually, the Jewish people had already themselves attained the Kedusha of the Mishkan before the Mishkan itself was built. Because they were already functioning in partition capacity at Harsinai. So they are already prepared for the divine presence to, to dwell among them themselves. As indeed the Navi Yirmiyahu says concerning B'nai Yisrael, Heichal Hashem Heima, they are the sanctuary. They are the repository, ultimately, of the, uh, they surround and contain, therefore, the divine presence. And what this means is the implications of this idea, and here the, the Meshachachma, as he often does, he, he embarks on what one can only call the halachic history of the Jewish people, whereby the experiences of the Jewish people are explained in halachic terms. We know that if the Mishkan existed in a certain place in the the desert, for example, 
when the time came to move. So the place where the Mishkan originally stood loses its sanctity. If you could ever identify, here stood the Mishkan. But when the Mishkan moves on, that place is not holy anymore because the divine presence isn't there anymore. But the, but the, the partitions of the Mishkan retain their presence, retain their Kedusha, which is very interesting. And this is, so again, as you move from the, in the 42 travels, or from the time the Mishkan was, was built, as you change location, the original location has no longer any sanctity. But the, but the, the things that surrounded the Kedusha, they, con- they continue to maintain their Kedusha. The very first time this happened was at Har Sinai. Har Sinai has no Kedusha after Matan Torah. As the Pasuk itself says, Bim Shochayovel, when the shofar blast sounds, they can ascend the mountain. It's, it's, it's a mountain like any other mountain, but the partitions maintain their Kedusha. That's the Jewish people. Wherever they go. Wherever you take the partitions of the Mishkan, their sanctity is intact. If the Jewish people are the original partitions of, of, the, of the Shekhinah, wherever they go, their sanctity is intact and the Divine Presence is with them. And that is the amic of what, of what the Gemara says in Megillah and elsewhere, that wherever the Jewish people were exiled to, the Divine Presence went along with them because they, because they drew the Kedusha, in, 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 not in, to, the, to the same degree of potency that as, as when they are in their land. But, but the, the, the Shekhinah travels with them. And this, this then now, um, these such simple words, is a depiction, an appraisal of the Jewish people, which is, which is simply uh, mind-boggling. And of course, what remains for us is only to add the, um, the wish, <coughs> that, that all of those partitions, wherever they are, should come back, and they should contain <coughs> and enclose the Kedusha where it should be contained and enclosed in its actual optimum location, Parakodesh, Birushalayim, and that's something we should witness and experience with ourselves. Bim Heir Amin.